Being quarantined in our homes, away from many, if not all, of our loved ones, is not a thing to celebrate. But it does afford us, despite real fears and discomfort, a great deal of time for meditation and reflection. Hopefully, God and Other Delicacies can be one of the ways in which you find a sliver of optimism in your day and the welcome warmth of connecting deeply with someone you've just met for the first time. Hello, everyone. Welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I'm Nicholas D'Augusto. Thank you all for being here. This is the first episode I'm recording under the COVID-19 shelter-in-place rules. So no surprise, but my guests are going to be on the phone for a while. I will be doing everything I can to make sure they don't hang up on me. So let's jump in. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming Amy Miller to the show. Amy is a professional comedian. She was one of Comedy Central's Up Next Comics for 2018 and was a breakout favorite in season nine of Last Comic Standing. Her Comedy Central Presents set has been viewed over three million times on YouTube and Facebook. Amy's debut album, Solid Gold, is available on Kill Rock Stars and was named one of the top 10 comedy albums of 2016 by the Intero Bang. She's won a bunch of awards. She tours all over the place when there isn't a global pandemic. I reached out to her after I discovered her podcast, Who's Your God?, which she hosts alongside her friend Steve Hernandez, who was my guest on the show last week. I'm sad that she can't be here with me in the studio, but I'm thrilled to have her on the phone. Welcome to the show, Amy. Hi, how's it going? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Pretty good. I mean, look, um, honestly, am I doing great? No, I'm not doing, I'm not doing great. Uh, this is an intense time. How are you, how are you holding up? Yeah, um, I'm coping okay. It's uh, just a day-by-day thing, mostly trying to not think about the future, but I'm lucky in a lot of ways. I have a place I like living and, you know, got some supplies and I love the person I'm here with. So all things considered, it's fine. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I uh, was going to ask if you have someone, a roommate, or if you have a pet or anything like that. Uh, I live with my boyfriend, Adam. Oh, right on. Yeah. Yeah. I I have a wife. I have a young child. I'm one of those people that um, my child is only three and a half, so he doesn't need to be like held to a specific curriculum, but I really feel for people that have multiple children and have children that they have to teach really high-level math and stuff like that. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. Yeah. So first of all, thank you for hooking me up with Steve Hernandez, who was an amazing interview, and I'm really excited to get to talk to you. Uh, The way the the show works is I usually open it up by asking what you had for breakfast. So what did you have for breakfast, Amy? Uh, I had coffee, of course, and some veggie sausage and some avocados. Wonderful. Are you a vegetarian? I'm also a vegetarian. I don't know if you're a vegetarian, but maybe you just like eating veggie sausage. I am not, uh, but I do for breakfast usually prefer veggie sausage, but also my boyfriend's a vegetarian, so we have like a lot of those products in our house usually. Yeah, I kind of mix it up. I like the Morningstar patties. Yeah, they're good. We do that too. My wife isn't vegetarian either, but she's been probably in a similar way to what you're doing for your boyfriend. She's um, very cool about eating lots of veggie stuff. But then there's the occasional moment where she's like, I need, um, there's just like a big piece of salmon comes home because it's time. Yeah, totally. She also is, whenever we go out, or whenever we used to be able to go out, almost always a (laughs) cheeseburger. (laughs) So Amy, how and when were you introduced to the idea of God in your life? Oh, well, pretty early, I guess, but not at home. Really strangely, I started going to church pretty young with one of my sisters because we lived a block away from a church and they would 
bring a recruitment van around the neighborhood for kids. And yeah, my parents just let us get in a van with some strangers and, <laughs> wow. and uh, go to church. And then eventually we just started walking there. So I think I started going there probably, you know, five years old or something. But before that, it wasn't really something that my parents talked about. You know, my grandparents weren't really religious too much, uh, maybe a little bit more so later in life as a lot of people are. But yeah, I think I was around five or maybe more six years old where it was really like God was a presence and God was someone that I was afraid of and, uh, you know, was also supposed to love and <clears throat> something that I thought about every day. Where were you in the country, first of all? Where, where are you at when you were growing up? In the East Bay, in California. Yeah, Bay Area. Oh, okay. And your parents were, so they didn't grow up in a religious environment because you said your grandparents weren't really into it. Not really. I mean, only insofar as my mom has a very big family and a lot of them are from Oklahoma. And so there's sort of like cultural Christianity there, kind of. Um, mm -hmm. But it wasn't something that my parents really like talked to the kids about at all. Did they have like a strong stance? Were they, were they atheists? Were they artists? Were they anti-religion, but they wanted uh, to let their kids were, explore it? They were just alcoholics. Um, <laughs> okay. They were just, you know, lower working class alcoholics pretty much. So it's just not, when I think about like being taught something, whether it's about God or anything else, I, my parents are not the first people that pop into my head. It's always my older siblings because my parents were just sort of absent for most of my childhood, either physically absent or, you know, emotionally absent. So, and they, they worked a lot too. So it's definitely different with my mom now, but my brother taught me how to ride a bike. My brother taught me how to do math before I learned it in school. You know, my sisters kind of taught me how to cook and like all these things. So since the other kids weren't uh, really religious or into God, my brother was definitely an atheist then. Yeah, I just didn't really like, he I mean, I was aware of it. You know, I had Christian friends and I mean, as like a little younger than five, which I don't even know how many kids under five really start thinking about God. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, yeah, well, you know, I was, was unless you're raised that, in it. Yeah, I'm sorry, go on, go on. Oh yeah, it just was not something that was really um, a factor in our house. It was very much godless and lawless and structureless and uh, chaotic. So, mm. uh, so I got all of it pretty much from the local church. And other people's parents who kind of looked out for me and stuff. But eventually I was self-regulating Christian at a pretty young age. So. <laughs> wow. Do you mind if I ask, is, is your dad still alive? No, he passed when I was nine. And, you know, I was just thinking when you asked that, I mean, that's sort of a time that God would come up, I think, if you're a kid, is if you, like, lose someone and, you know, someone tells you they're going to heaven or whatever. But... I don't even remember when my dad passed, like, my mom saying anything about God. I mean, she probably also didn't believe that he would go to heaven, so maybe that's part of it. Wow. But yeah, right. um, people at my church obviously would talk about it and say, you know, we're praying for you and stuff. But in my immediate family, my aunts and uncles and all that, like, it's not something that even really came up around death, at least as far as I can remember. Wow. Well, there's a lot there, Amy. <laughs> you know, it's great. I mean, I got an hour, uh, as long as you don't hang up on me. You have three older siblings is what I could gather, right? One brother, two sisters? Yes, I have three older siblings. And then growing up, we also, we would just kind of take in 
local teens, <laughs> I don't know, or have our cousins live with us and stuff like that. So there were four of us kids, but there were always kind of extras, um, either like my sister's friends who had been kicked out of their house or whatever it was. But a lot of the our cousins and the kids we knew kind of understood that there were not really any rules at our house. So we would be the place that people would end up living. So... <laughs> So yeah, that's, I was going to ask. Technically four kids total, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's that's really interesting. So that you're talking about absentee parents, but a kind of open door policy, which would which would which you would think is a sort of like magnanimous element, right? Like people are just coming in. This is a house people can, can hang out at. But what you're saying is mostly the children had sort of free reign to kind of do whatever. If they wanted their friends to come in and be there for a week or something, the friends could just kind of stay there for a week. Yeah, well, I think my mom also, for being kind of absent, she's always been an inherently generous person. And so, you know, and we weren't being beaten, basically. <laughs> I mean, we were severely neglected. Uh, and my dad and brother would certainly get in fistfights. But, you know, if you're talking about like, oh, mom, my friend is, like, getting hit by his mom. Like, can he come stay with us? Like, that's something she would always say yes to, you know what I mean? And then, and make sure that he had food and everything and and a place to sleep. So, and same with some of our cousins, because my extended family is also insane. And so if she ever had, you know, a nephew or a niece who said, like, can I come stay with you? Then she would say yes. So it was just very, a lot of people coming in and out. Um, You know, I think she wanted to nurture but she was really kind of drowning at the time. I have more empathy for it now. Uh, Well, especially through the quarantine where I'm like, yeah, a lot of us cope with alcohol. Um, (laughs) Yes, right. (laughs) um, Yes. Happy hours like the thing to look forward to. Yeah. I mean, especially after my dad passed and she was just like a single mom with all these kids and not a lot of money. And so I understand more of it now, but yeah, she was just kind of open to people staying with us, I guess. So there was always a revolving door. And it was a fun house to be in if you were a teenager because there was no regulation of any kind, you know. Are you thankfully, like boozing, you're like was, boozing with your parents or something, right? Well, thankfully, I was a very, uh, thankfully, I was a Christian kid. Um, and I had discovered that because I think if I hadn't, I would have done, you know, a lot more of that shit. Yeah. Uh, Because my older brother and sister were, yeah, they were drinking, doing drugs with their friends and often at the house. And so I was just a little like six-year-old Bible toting, (laughs) like, I'll pray for you guys. (laughs) Wow, Amy, that's amazing. So I hope you don't mind my asking, but do you have all your siblings still today? Are they all alive? Yes, I do. Are they, are you all, do you all remain as close having been kind of through the bond that you all were through at that time? Yeah, we are now, I think. There have definitely been periods where we've kind of gone in and out. And I had a long period of time where I didn't really talk much to my, especially my sisters. But now we're all very close. I think partially as a function of them having kids. I mean, all things considered, we're all pretty well adjusted, especially compared side by side to all of our cousins. Um, I think maybe as a function of where we grew up or I don't know, but you know, we're doing pretty well. And so we've gotten closer and the big goal is like, okay, now we have these kids, another generation. And so the the only goal is to make sure that they don't experience any of the stuff that we went through. Um, So yeah, they all still live in the Bay area. My brother has two kids and one of my sisters has one kid and 
yeah, we've been in pretty close touch, especially over the last few weeks. But I'd say maybe over the last five years, we've grown pretty close. There's always fights. There's always conflict. People still have their baggage for sure. You know, no fight is ever what it is on the surface. It's always like based on (laughs) historical precedent. (laughs) Um, But yeah, we're close. I love them very much. Um, I get that. You know, I'm in the middle of five, so I, I get a sibling, uh, sibling connections. I did not come from the upbringing that you had, so I do not want to uh, act as though I know exactly what that baggage must mean for you. But certainly all, all families have their own baggage. Thank you for all that. That's a lot of really interesting stuff. Sure, yeah. So my first question, I guess, is did any of your siblings continue staying? You were introduced to Christianity guided by one of your sisters. You sort of then kind of gave me the impression that you were kind of like a soul the only one kind of holding up the Bible at that point. And did you kind of continue Um, in that way for a while? No. Yeah, we both definitely continued in it. Uh, My sister actually much longer than me. She's two years older than me. I'm the youngest. And I think my other sister maybe went a few times. The church really tried to recruit her. My brother was an absolute lost cause. In fact, one of the people that the church was often praying for because he was a part of the... um, early East Bay punk Gilman street stuff. And he, uh, so he was always, and at that time it's like the mid eighties and everyone, all the adults in my church are convinced that punk rock music is the devil's music and that it's taking our kids and whatever. So, so yeah, my brother was never interested and, and I mean, he found his church truly like Gilman was his community and in many ways still is my other sister, she was like Mormon for a while, which is really strange because she never took to the church that we went to. But then as a teenager, like got hung up with some Mormons and started doing that. But for the most part, it was just me and my one sister and we would go to church. I mean, honestly, you know, four times a week and wow. went to summer camp. And then when I was applying to colleges, I Applied to, you know, several UCs, but she's older than me, so she was already at a Bible college in Oklahoma, and I was seriously considering going there, and then I got into Berkeley, and uh, just as a side note, also, I don't count her college because it was often not accredited. Wow. <laughs> Which is hilarious. That is but hilarious. When I, oh my gosh. It, in the in the statistic I'm about to say, uh, I don't count her college because I was technically the first uh, person in my family and extended family to get into a college and go all four years and graduate. So yeah. um, not something that was ever really done in my family. My parents didn't go to college. My older siblings didn't even graduate high school. So, um, which has changed a little bit now. My sister went back, uh, older sister went back later, but I was like, oh, well, do I go to this really good school in the Bay Area where I'm comfortable being or do I now live in Oklahoma? And I think the funny thing is that one of the ways we're different is, well, A, she stayed in Christianity longer and harder, but also she likes that community of people, or she did at the time. She she doesn't anymore, but she's very much like, I want to be around. I think she wanted to be around other people that were like her, but was also comfortable around those kinds of kids or college students. And I don't know. I think I had more of a thirst for knowledge. I wanted to be around more like creative people and be in more of kind of a real city. You know, I didn't want to live in like nowhere, Oklahoma. We just have different vibes in that way. She's very like, she's content being comfortable 
you know, and not being challenged, I guess, which again is different now, but at the time. So yeah, so I ended up going to Berkeley and then it was sort of the beginning of my (laughs) descent into not being Christian anymore. But it took um, quite a long time after that. Well, you know what? This is a great place to take a break. And when we come back, I'm interested to ask some questions about what kind of mentors maybe you found in your life, since it sounds like a lot of this uh, you sort of did on your own. So that's probably where we're going to jump off right after the break. Okay, thanks. Hey there, if you're one of the fans listening to the show right now on iTunes, I'd really appreciate it if you took a second to just scroll to the bottom, hit five stars on the ratings, wrote a one to two sentence review. It really helps the show find new listeners, and it means a lot to me because I love getting your feedback. Thanks. Hi, everyone. We're back with Amy Miller. And like I said, I kind of wanted to know, how did you even get your shit organized for college? I mean, to be honest with you, it sounds like you were just being a very good student throughout high school. You know, we kind of skipped over <laughs> that. But I, yeah. I, I mean, I remember going through my collegiate preparation and I went to a Jesuit school. And so typically they want to just sort of funnel you to Jesuit colleges, which they succeeded in doing with me. And I went to Marquette and I had, I mean, I loved my education, but I had a lot of, I had private Catholic education my entire schooling career. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, I guess I ask because this has the sound of someone who was forced to grow up very quickly. And mm-hmm. it sounds like you were doing that and you had the intelligence and the proactive streak to take advantage of what was out there. But I, I just am sort of trying to relate to this situation going, man, it feels like you kind of got on your feet relatively quickly without a lot of guidance. And is there someone that was helping guide you or did you just sort of drive through it yourself? Yeah, it's interesting. So I think the bulk of it was really kind of positive peer pressure. For whatever reason, I always was a good, well, I I want to say a good student, but. Yeah, you laughed at entirely, that earlier. <laughs> <laughs> it's not entirely true. I mean, I was always sort of academically ahead of everyone I was in school with, but I didn't always show up. So that's. What, okay, <laughs> I mean, fair. The effort, I think. Because in my early education, I went to Christian school, which was more of a convenience thing than anything because my church had a school. I forgot to mention that. I also went to school at my church. Wow. Uh, (laughs) So I was there pretty much around the clock. Um, Wow. And, you know, it was a small little like Baptist school. Thank you. I was about to ask that. Was it Baptist is what you said it is. Okay, good. Yeah, Free Will Baptist. So a lot of the teachers, because you don't, you know, you don't have to play by the same rules as like a public school. So a lot of the teachers were kind of underqualified and I really had to have self-guided learning. And then also my older siblings would help me a lot. I don't know. I started to read very early and my mom taught me to read at three. And I don't, I, I think she was just like, let's get this skill out of the way. And I was, I was really, um, hungry for it. So that sort of set me off on this trajectory to be, um, you know, an A student, even though, I mean, I was always turning in things late and not showing up and whatever, even in elementary school, I took a lot of days off (laughs) because again, there were no rules at my house. And sometimes I just wouldn't walk to school when I was supposed to. So I went to college early, but I think it was mostly because I was in advanced classes in high school and all of my friends were applying. And if there's anything, you know, I wanted in high school was it was to be accepted and loved by my peers. So I was like, mm. oh yeah, yeah, I'm totally applying to college, but like 
no one in my family had ever done it. So I just kind of had to figure it out and ask my friend's parents. And it was an uphill battle with my mom. She didn't really understand, like, why do you have to pay for SATs? Why do you have to pay to apply to college? And truly, when you think about it, it's really sickening that that's true. And I know there are some income forgiveness programs if you're, you know, you have a lower income. But the bigger thing was at that time, she didn't necessarily have a low income anymore, but she it, it has a poor background and there was no precedent for anyone going to college. And you can't say, you know, I mean, this is like the late nineties. You can't say, Hey, my mom makes, you know, 70 grand a year, but she's just doesn't know anything. So can you not charge me for the SATs? You know? Mm. So I, battled with her and she ended up paying for that stuff. And then I applied to two schools, Santa Cruz and Berkeley and got into Berkeley. And I, I wasn't even like aware that it was a big deal at all. At that time, I just started to notice people's reactions and they were like very surprised. And a lot of my friends who applied didn't get in who were like from much fancier backgrounds than me and also really good students. So I was like, I don't know. Yeah, I guess I'll go. And technically <laughs> older than you, it sounds like. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I started I started college when I was 17. Yeah, it so sounds like I you really, were a year behind. I mean, it sounds like you jumped a year. Uh, yeah, yeah, wow. essentially. Yeah, my I had a boyfriend at senior year in high school, and he ended up going to Berkeley as well, so that was a huge help. I feel guilty sometimes how much I leaned on him, but it's fine. I don't think he's worried about it. Well, when, do, you mind like, if I, do you mind if I pry? I mean, what do you mean? Like, do you mean financially or just emotionally? Um, just more for information and for some of the logistics, because this was so foreign to my mom that, I mean, I did do so much of it on my own and with the help of my siblings, but you know, now I did feel very adult at the time, but when you picture a 17 year old, like that's a full on child, you know? Oh, for sure, man. So then we have to look at paying the initial tuition, applying for financial aid, figuring out if I'm going to live in the dorms or rent a place. And that is something that came through someone through the church actually too. Because someone I went to church with said, my friend has an in-law, you know, a little in-law unit in Berkeley. It's four fifty a month. Can't believe it. I should have stayed there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so that well, but you're going to take a happened. you're going to take an anti-Christian turn. So I you, you wouldn't have been able to do it. I can't wait to get to that part of the story. Yeah, Go on. exactly. So that just sort of kind of happened through friends, and then we didn't have to talk about the dorms, which were prohibitively expensive. Like I don't know how anyone goes to college. It's fucking crazy. Yeah, I mean, um, look, I, my fucking dad paid for college for me. I mean, I don't, I don't. Yeah. Looking back, I mean, most of my friends, I would say, my friends are split about half. Half have debt, and half got to have. Uh, I came from like an upper middle class background by the time by the time I came along, you know, my dad had made enough money to kind of move up into that area and he took care of those things for me. And, you know, at the age, yeah. at that age, I was like all too happy to have it. But man, was I not in the majority of people who have to struggle. And you're speaking of a story that's even more challenging of a background than just somebody that that just can't get that help from their parents, but has the support of their parents. You didn't even have this sort of the emotional support of your parents to go, let alone you had to pay for everything too. So I can only imagine how intimidating that was. Yeah, no, it was, I mean, it just kind of did it. And I think uh, the thing with my high school sweetheart at the time was his parents were doctors. And so it was very much a part of like, they got it. They were not um, excited to help me, by the way. I don't think they ever wanted their son involved with me Hmm. um, because I was a a poor kid, essentially. But it was kind of like, okay, we have to get this truck to move his stuff down to college. So we'll put your stuff in it, too. You know, like they helped me a lot 
in that way. But I just got information from him, truly, like every step of the way. So I'm really grateful for that. You know, financially, my mom ended up coming around. But yeah, I still have debt from college. I don't know what I'm using it for because I'm a comedian, but yeah, but right. I'm happy for the experience. And I do think if I hadn't been Christian as a young kid, that I would not have gone down that road. I think I would have gone the way of my other two siblings of like not finishing high school and just kind of floating. And then now, you know, now they've got their, their stuff figured out, but it took a while. Wow. So how long did your high school sweetheart relationship last at Berkeley? We ended up staying together two more years and then... Did you live together um, then the whole time? No, no, we never lived together. Oh, you did he the did dorms. live in the dorms, okay. yeah. Which was a fun experience. I kind of got the experience without being there because then I befriended a bunch of people like on his floor and some of those people are still like my closest friends in the world. So, oh, fun. I mean, I really sort of leached off of his college experience and I hope that he doesn't have any resentment about it. I mean, we loved each other very much at the time, but but then after, you know, he went to study abroad in Italy and so we broke up and I kept being friends with kind of all those dorm people. And yeah, I don't I wouldn't have had a lot of the same social experience as I had without him. And then yeah, he met someone in Italy on study abroad and then Come they on. as if you were didn't married. see the writing on the wall in this story. <laughs> I mean they were married for 13 years. Whoa! <laughs> um, did he come back to, to finish his degree or did he just stay and go to school in Italy? No, no, he came back. She was she was from California too. Oh, I see. So I see. yeah, they were just on the same program. But it was a very funny thing because, you know, he was like high school sweetheart, my first everything. I owe so much to him. I don't think he sees it that way. He's very grown up to be a very nice guy, but they got divorced. I think it must've been six years ago. This is before I was with my current boyfriend. This is a side note, fun story. Um, Please. Somehow, I don't know. I, I was like, he started following me on Instagram or something. Then I'm like, what's this about? Okay. <laughs> and uh, so I look and I see clearly like he's gotten a divorce. And so by that time, you know, we're in our late, or mid thirties. And he's been with, I assume, unless he cheated on his wife, two people, you know, right. in ever. And I've been with 2000 or whatever. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> so he ended up hanging out. It's, it's a very funny thing to have sex as an adult with the person you lost your virginity to. That um, is an amazing uh, story. <laughs> uh, that's incredible. Yeah. I've never, I, I don't think I've ever heard that. I don't think I've, I don't think I know anybody that's had that experience as far as I can think. It of. was very funny. And I, I just always loved him so much. I didn't like see him as the one that got away. I just like, I'm really appreciative to him. And so I was like very frank about the whole thing too. Like, Hey, we're going to hang out and this is just going to happen. I mean, I know you probably want to do it because you probably haven't had sex in years if you were in a bad marriage. So, yeah, let's hang out. <laughs> How fun. It sounds, and now we're buddies again. I was just going to say, you you are being... Um, one of the things that was interesting to me about... I mean, this is an interesting story, but you were kind of alluding to this. I hope he does... You kept saying things like, I hope he doesn't have any resentment of this or that or that. It doesn't sound like there's any of that at all. It sounds like you got to have this really beautiful kind of wrap-up to what would have been such an impressionable early formative relationship. What a cool thing to get to have a romantic button on in, in a totally fair way. Both people are out of their relationships. No one's cheating. You get to have like a moment where you reconnect as adults and then you get to sort of put the early thing in, in a different context. I think that sounds really cool. 
Yeah, no, I think it was a, I, I think it was a beautiful kind of wrap up too. I agree. So he's great. Yeah, so cool. Well, can't wait to meet him. Uh, no, I <laughs> come on down, Jeff. Uh, I don't know his name. So his name is Jeff. That's really weird. <laughs> oh, dang it. I was like, no. did I say that? No, that you're lying. So you're bizarre. Yeah, I don't you dare. You. Don't do that to me. His you're name playing is Jeff. me. I am not kidding you. <laughs> you're a comedian. You're lying. You're stringing me along. That's no, it. I don't do that. I don't believe in pranks or any of that stuff, like saying something that's not true. It's not my kind of comedy. His name is Jeff. You're kidding me. It's a very common name. I have three ex-boyfriends named Jeff. So let's. <laughs> I mean, listen though. Come on, that's amazing. This is one of the best things that's ever happened to me. Okay, you nailed so, it. So uh, thanks, thank you. So um, I'm going to review this in the edit. And I'm going to see if this was subconsciously like put in. Like I like you said it earlier, and yeah, then I, I thought and it, maybe I had said it. You you, you might you might have, and so and so I'll decide if this is valuable to keep in the edit. Or to, because okay. because whether or not people will laugh at my sheer idiocy of having forgotten that you already told me, or no, I don't think I said it. I think you just God. said a common name of a white man. <laughs> well, I just I'm so glad I chose that one. Next big things are when do you discover comedy, and when and why do you uh, leave Christianity? So you're kind of okay. like you're sort of in college at this point. Yeah, those two things are very far apart. Oh, uh, okay, fair. A decade. So while leaving Christianity, it, uh, and by the way, you can also hear the story on the first episode of my podcast, Who's Your God? Yes, well, yeah, I, I pumped that at the beginning. This is why I found you, yeah. for sure. Yeah, cool. Yeah, no, totally, totally. I'm just saying if you want to hear like the extended version of the story. But basically, I mean, it was a very long process. It was not overnight by any means. I... When I was, you know, my first year at Berkeley, I was torn, I was being drawn many different ways. I, you know, was in school. I had this relationship and he is not a Christian, by the way. And so it also kind of like felt weird, like we weren't having sex yet. And mm. uh, we were doing many other things, but I was kind of saving that one thing. And Sure. And I started working at this independent video store and like those people became like kind of my community and some of them I'm still friends with now and nobody I knew was Christian. So it was very confusing. And I tried a few different churches sort of closer to Berkeley campus and nothing really stuck. And I would go to these Christian clubs and like go try to save homeless people, which is so embarrassing now. It's like they don't they need food and shelter, <laughs> not like <laughs> Bible right, proselytizing. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's very antithetical to everything I'm <laughs> I stand for now, so it kind of makes me cringe even thinking about it just and also sometimes, you know, we would go to this park in Berkeley called People's Park, which is essentially became and I think still is a homeless park, long-term camping and a lot of drugs. So I think I was also like bringing hot chocolate and mm. the word of God to people who were severely mentally ill and or actively tripping. So, wow. Uh, wow. so I don't know, I tried a few things and I just eventually accepted that I was probably not going to go to church unless I sometimes went back to visit my old church that I grew up in and that kind of became more progressively okay. And then I don't know, I started having sex with my boyfriend and then I was watching so many movies and just really mm -hmm. got more excited about uh, education and art than thinking about Jesus. And 
But it took years after that for me to kind of drop the guilt of it all. And I mean, the nightmares and the fear as a very anxious kid and teenager. So the, um, you know, I was very much convinced the apocalypse was going to happen during my lifetime, which is so funny because now we've lived through several. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. um, and then, you know, I'm in college and 9-11 happens and that sort of like shook me a little bit and maybe wonder if I should be Christian again and or if this was it. You know, I think like a lot of kids who have Christian backgrounds at that time, we thought like that was the beginning of the apocalypse and then there were going to be many other things after that and then finally Jesus was going to return. And then at the same time, I'm also like trying to become an adult and I'm working constantly because I'm putting myself through college. And yeah, it just, it was a long, it was a long, long process and it it wasn't really until you know, maybe my late twenties that I was fully, fully out of it to the extent that like, I wasn't even like praying, you know, during turbulence on an airplane. Do you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Cause there's always those ways that it kind of pops back up, but I didn't um, start comedy until I was 30. So it was much, it was much later. And I don't think there was any, there would have been any hope of me starting it any earlier because it was kind of a fluke that really snowballed (laughs) (laughs) well this is an excellent cliffhanger and then we will start that at the beginning of what will be our final section in just a couple of minutes cool By the way, God and Other Delicacies has a weekly newsletter. If you'd like to subscribe, email me at godsdelicateshow at gmail.com and I'll put you on the list. All right, everybody, we're back with the final segment with Amy Miller. So, Amy, we might circle back. I I might circle back to this long protracted section where you were talking about the guilt and stuff of extricating yourself from your sort of daily participation in a Christian impulse. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't really know what you were doing for your job. I don't even know what your major was. What, your, what was your major? I was a sociology major. So my plan was to do social work, which I did for a while in various ways without a master's after college. And then I was you know, always planning to go back to grad school and then... I don't know. I started working in music and various other things happened. And then I started comedy. So I just kind of never went. But now I'm really thinking about it. (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay. So, well, what do you mean you're really thinking about it? Oh, I just mean in the middle of the quarantine where I I don't have a job anymore. I see what you're saying. (laughs) What my options are. I see what you're saying. Yes, indeed. Okay. So tell me how the hell does comedy start? I'm excited to know how something unexpectedly becomes a catalyst for you to take over the next decade of your professional life? Yeah, so I was working at a diner and doing various other jobs and kind of working for this music startup. And I just made a bunch of new friends through that restaurant. One of those friends eventually bullied me into going to a stand-up open mic. And we're still friends. Uh, She lives in Cincinnati. I just visited her, actually. Oh, wow, my, like just before well, the restrictions? My Yeah, my last trip before the isolation. She, yeah, she was a teacher, and she just was really funny, and she just wanted to try this thing. I think 
for both of us, it was like, oh, won't this be like silly and weird? I was extremely nervous. But I also, at the time, was really wanting to get over my kind of stage fright and fear of public speaking in general. Um, and not just public speaking, but like any, you know, I had I had already had a couple of professional sort of jobs. And even if I had to like lead a meeting or anything like that, like I would get extremely anxious and it was something, it was kind of a monkey I wanted off my back in my life. So I was like, well, let's all do the scariest thing I can imagine. And then we went to this open mic and it went pretty well. I got some laughs and then we just met a bunch of people and kept going back. I think the community of it really sucked me in too. And did you like prepare jokes or did you just walk up and start talking? No, yeah, we we kind of prepared together. We had a general plan. And I mean, it's like three minutes, which is funny at the time. It really crawls by, but it's not, you know, it's just a, really a couple of jokes, depending on what kind of comic you are. Yeah. But for your first time, you know, you're doing a lot of rambling. Nothing's really that tight. So yeah. three minutes, you know. No, we, had, we definitely made a plan. And then I just met all these awesome people. And it was just this funny, weird thing I never thought I could be a part of. And then I just kept going and Becky did comedy for maybe like a year and then stopped and I kept at it. And here we are. Wow. I feel like one of the impressions I have in the network of comedians that I've, that I either know to some extent or have just been a fan of is that there is this just kind of immense caretaking and always sort of being there to help hone each other. Do you have that? Is that part of what the community brought you is this kind of constant positive reinforcement to keep going and keep getting tighter and keep getting better. And you always have someone to bounce something off of. And is that part I of what the rhythm so, is? Yeah. yeah, for sure. I was also kind of hungry for a different community at that time because I had, you know, around 2006, I was like working for my friend's startup. And that sort of took me down this road of being wrapped up in like the San Francisco early tech startup scene. And I did not relate to most of those people. I loved my job and I'm still close friends with the guy who started the company. So I'm grateful for him, but I just, I don't know. I was looking for something else. I was definitely like the only person that had a story, you know, my kind of story, really not a very funny crowd either. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I just, you know, I just, the the money of it and the richness of it, I just felt very foreign to me. I didn't like it. And so when I met a lot of comedians, I immediately met a bunch of people that I had so much in common with. And also this is uh, 2010. It was like the height of a recession and, and, you know, especially in the East Bay and a lot of people were out of work, which created this huge resurgence in um, stand-up comedy because a lot of people lost their jobs. And so they just, they needed an outlet of of some kind. Hmm. So I just kind of like met a bunch of people who were fun and funny and also struggling. (laughs) And I really enjoyed that. And it just gave me something, you know, it's really funny. All the early shows I did, I was a huge bringer because all those tech friends and many of them, I'm still friends with that. It's not all of them. It was just sort of as a collective, the whole thing grossed me out, you know? And during a recession, also like how much money that culture was still spending, you know, like let's have a party and hire this band for 50 grand. And it's like, people don't even have jobs in the Bay area right now. Like what are we doing? It was just kind of a gross scene. And it's so funny how like 
social media obsessed I am now. I mean, obsessed is not the right word, but I also have to use it for my job. But like, right. you know, I was there at South by Southwest when Twitter launched and I was like, this is the most horrible idea I've ever. It's so annoying. Like, I don't know who's ever going to use this and just, I had no uh, vision for the future that <laughs> all of this was going now to Now I see off. you use Twitter quite effectively. I follow you oh, on Twitter. Yeah. I mean, I'm on it all the time. Um, <laughs> It's such a comedian's. But, uh, it's such a comedian's world. Twitter. I feel like I, it's. It's like either screaming at the political world or it's just really good comedy. I feel like you. That's the. Those are the things to follow on Twitter. As far as oh, I'm absolutely. Can, is, I mean, every every platform is perfected by black teens, comedians, and porn stars. Like that's who like <laughs> figures it out. And none of the you know none of those groups ever get the credit that they deserve for like blowing it up. Uh, but that. That's just the truth. Um, uh. So, so yeah, so I met all these comedians and they were, uh, I mean, largely like much younger than me because most people start at 20, 22, whatever. So I'm hanging around with like people, you know, 10 years younger than me and they were just fun and funny. And, um, and there was just a momentum to it because I think especially like early on, if you're a woman and you have a couple of jokes and you're funny, like, you know, shows need us to round out these very male lineups. Mm. And so I just started getting booked. I mean, I think after my second set, maybe someone asked me to do a show and I was like, that sounds fucking crazy. Mm. But I always had a huge crowd because all these tech friends would come, you know, buy tickets. They still had disposable income. And uh, and so sometimes I would bring like, you know, 30, 50 people to come see me. And Oh, yeah. Um, you were, you were making the, shows happen just by yourself. Wow. A hundred percent. Yeah. And then I started my own shows and got a reputation for running good shows because I would always make sure everyone got paid and there was a crowd, you know, just little things that should always happen. Right. right. <laughs> um, and then it just, it just, I mean, snowball is really the only word for it. Cause I had many moments that I was like, I don't know why I'm doing this. It's so nuts, but I have a show on the books for next week. So I'll do that. And then, reevaluate after and then there would always be another show so just okay kind of never stopped so this is great this is like we're kind of you know we have about 10 or 15 more minutes on the hour and this is a seems like a great point to kind of ask one larger sort of a general question which is so how does your spirituality continue or evolve throughout this time period now you're fully dedicated to this new craft this is an all-consuming thing as anybody that's trying to be a professional in that environment in particular has to be totally dedicated to that all the time. But there's something in you that drives you to start, for instance, a podcast eventually, which would have been just a few years ago, right? Uh, the Who's Your God? And so there's something percolating throughout this time. And I imagine it's some kind of, some impulse for reconciliation with your past or... I It's still something that's kind of evolving all the time. And I... You know, I'm in a lucky spot where I do have to think about it a little bit pretty much every week because of the podcast. So I think, you know, in my in my 20s, I my pendulum late 20s really swung completely to the other side where I was like, fuck the church, fuck God, fuck Christians. I don't want anything to do with these people I grew up with. Um, and was very resentful about the whole experience. And then that kind of came back to a comfortable middle where I'm like, 
you know, I became more open to people being religious and I sort of understood why people do it. And then also started to see the positives that came out of me being a part of that life, some of which I've mentioned, which is like, I didn't get mixed up in drugs really young. You know, I right. didn't, um, I was a good student and, and all these things. And I also had adults that looked out for me when my parents weren't, you know? So it took me a while to kind of see those positives. And now, I don't know. Um, I guess I'm a kind of spiritual person. I just am really working every day towards being a good person and caring for people and um, appreciating my connectedness to other people. I think, you know, over the past couple of weeks, this is something we've all been thinking about. So I'm glad that I got a little bit of a jump on it. Um, mm -hmm. Because I'm seeing people kind of like get hit in the face with it in isolation of just like, oh, I didn't, you know, appreciate my friends enough. In the past few years, I've been seeing, you know, how much, I mean, A, I think the beginning of the process is kind of learning to like yourself because if you like yourself, then you sort of like all the different ingredients that went into the recipe, good and bad. And so I can't discount you know, that experience of being Christian and growing up in church, if I want to be grateful for who I am now. And I think a lot of the other part of that is just people and the people that I've been lucky to know and um, connect with. And so over the last couple of years, especially as I'm like always on tour, I mean, I've been sort of hotel room isolation for, <laughs> for two and a half years, you know, mm. um, as I've been on the road. I mean, I'm seeing a lot of people. You Are know, you just endlessly on the road? Are you one of those comics that is just like, you do the fall tour and then it's like, get ready for the spring tour? Are you just kind um, of... Yeah, no, it's been pretty constant over the last couple of years, which is nice. I've been really lucky um, to get a lot of work. And although it is highly social, there's also long stretches of isolation, either just when during the traveling process or like, you know, all day before the shows happen. And then right, when you course. get back to your hotel after the shows. Right. So I've been making an effort for some time to just kind of like be better at staying in touch with people, you know, tell people how much I love and appreciate them. And I like, have gone so far as like making a list of names in my phone because, you know, sometimes you have friends you haven't talked to in years that you're like, oh, I, you almost forget that they exist, but not in a bad way. You just, you know, your life has momentum. You're just doing your shit every day. And, right, and then you go like, oh, I should. Yeah. And they're like, maybe not on social media. So you don't have this constant reminder of them. And so I kind of made a list and just been making that effort. And so, yeah, I don't, I think my current version of God and spirituality is just like living like my um, individual actions have consequences and also can be a, a help to other people. Um, I don't know. And just that I'm not like out here floating by myself and that the thing that's bigger than me is other people, I guess, um, which I don't know. I mean, do I believe in God? Uh, I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> hmm. But I think there's something. But I also am not at a place where I know 100% either way. And I'm not like, these are my beliefs. I'm. They're just sort of growing and morphing. And yeah, I mean, we talk about it every week. So I'm always like considering new things and new approaches. 
so let's let's finish with that. Let's go into what's inspired Who's Your God? And I mean, obviously it comes out of this time period where you have time during the days, you you're looking to fill them with good conversation. You want to feel connected. Is that is that right? That you're, you're this is something that an idea you come up with. I mean, how do you meet Steve? You meet Steve around town. Uh, is it, was it your uh, idea? Was it your idea or yeah? Okay. Was it both yeah, of you together? It was, my, it was my idea. And when we started, we had another co-host as well. It was just something I was thinking about. And then I asked them if they wanted to be involved and uh, yeah. And then we parted ways eventually with John Michael and it became just me and Steve, but yeah, I just met them both through comedy. And do you feel like, is, is it just as simple as something you might've just expressed, but it's just a place for you to engage with this conversation every week. It's just a, it, you just enjoy it in the way that you used to have the rhythm of God in your life as a young person. Now you have um, the rhythm of God in your life as just a conversation where you connect deeply about it. Or is there, are there other yeah, talk to me about what are the I things mean, you love about doing it. I enjoy it because I think that comedians are interesting and m most of them funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, it was something I hadn't heard a lot of on other podcasts interviewing comedians. I also have this sickness where I like don't, I don't love small talk. I yeah. guess the podcast has done a really funny thing, which now when I tour, I'll meet total strangers who want to tell me their religion story. And that to me is infinitely better than talking about like what restaurant I'm going to try in their town. Do you know For what I mean? Sure. I'm like, yes, let's get right to existence and Jesus. Like, yes. Yes. Um, I know. And the feeling. Yeah. I just, I like knowing about comedians motivations and their background. And I think it provides a, a great vehicle for that. And I think like the best comics are thoughtful about their existence and also their effect on other people. I mean, to some extent we all have to be because we're literally trying to like control a group's actions at all times. Um, I mean, when we're on stage, so, or at least elicit a response from a group that's uniform so I don't know. I, I was interested in Steve's background as a mega church pastor. Like, I think that's so nuts and cool um, in, in certain ways. And yeah, I don't know. I think it's also an excuse to like have people that I really like over to my house and talk to them for a, an hour about the deepest things over like, you know, I don't know, just getting fucked up and talking about comedy, which is a problem too. We all get together and talk about comedy and what other people are getting and what everyone's working on. And especially in LA, it's like, Oh, my commercial agent and like, you know, kill myself. Yes, yes, uh, let's yes. talk about God. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, no surprise, uh, but I also enjoy it. Okay. So then before we go, before I let you go, I'd love to ask you a question that I asked Steve, which is what makes you despair and what gives you hope? Um, Interesting. So, I mean, something that makes me always like lifelong thing that I've been frustrated by or saddened by. I don't, I guess what gives me a despair is just injustice and unfairness. And for a lot of my life, I, it's taken me a long time to kind of pinpoint what that is. I think some of it comes from <laughs> truly my own background as like, the youngest child, I mean, your your life is like riddled with injustice on a personal level <laughs> because you just 
don't, no one sees you. You don't get to have your own stuff. Like there's just a lot of stuff happens that no matter how good of a kid I was, it didn't mean that I got better treatment. Um, and I think it started on a personal level, but you know, as a kid, I was very much like, look, always looking out for other underdogs and, um, trying to figure out like why certain kids got treated certain ways by my teachers. And I was too little to really understand at the time, misogyny and racism and homophobia. And as I understood those things later, um, you know, I sort of got more angry about it. And still to this day, I'm not, you know, it's so funny the number of times by trolls I've been called online a social justice warrior. I'm just like, Hmm. I am an, every kind of justice warrior. (laughs) Like this is not, this is literally about like what's fair. And it comes up in comedy a lot because we were told this lie that like all that matters is you're like really funny and work hard and you're nice to people. And it's just absolutely not true. It does not correlate to the amount of success you have. It might correlate to your personal accomplishment and success, but there's still a lot of horrible, unfunny, mediocre men that get, you know, a lot more than they should because of how misogyny works and how much men look out for each other. And so it's just always in different times in my life, including we were talking about, you know, working in tech, like, you know, something I thought a lot about there where it's like all these startups and tech companies are doing like, you know, inclusion programs to like hire um, you know, people of color. And it's like, yeah, you, but it's not, you also have like stupid, lazy white men working here. We're like making up for the bad job that they're doing. So it's don't like pat yourself on the back. Like if you start with someone being qualified and smart and working hard, the inclusion will come automatically. You're basically just correcting for your own racism right mm. now. And I just like felt like it was just so unfair. Like it was unfair how you know, little I was being paid compared to some of my male coworkers who didn't do any work, you know? Um, So I think, you know, I'm still at that place where every day, like the thing that I feel the most despair about is just the unfairness of how people are treated based on who they are. Um, And that can mean many different things, you know? Um, I've, I've even felt that despair in my personal life, you know, back when I was still dating and it was like I encountered all these men who wanted to secretly be involved with a plus size woman, but not publicly, you know, and it's just like, you know, it's just, it's not fair. Like I've given you so much and like we have this great connect. Obviously it ends up being for the best that I'm not with those cowards, but at the time it feels like, you know, it's just based on this one thing, this one quality about me and all the other things about me you love. So like, what are we doing? You know? Um, yeah. Well, that was actually something that's very poignant in my house. I come from a family where we, many people in my family battle weight issues or that's been a conversation for a long time. So I remember as a young child being very attuned to that. I can understand at least on that level, how painful those types of comments can be. Yeah, totally. Um, and yeah, so I think, you know, in the middle of what we're kind of dealing with now and we're all seeing that, seems to be very easy for celebrities to get a coronavirus test. Um, mm. And people who don't have the income or resources um, are going to continue to die, probably undiagnosed, untreated. And, you know, healthcare workers are 
never appreciated. And just like now they're making these on the spot life and death choices of like, you can have a ventilator, but you can't because you know, you're old and you're going to die anyway. Like it just, uh, yeah. I mean, that's what I feel the most despair about on a daily basis is just, um, the shitty ways that humans treat each other. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that resonates hard. (laughs) Okay, talk about hope. But the well, yeah, but the hope is exactly on the flip side of that. And it's very much like an overused Mr. Rogers thing now, but like, you know, looking for the helpers, you know, I have faith in people. I still have faith in people and I I feel hopeful that as like the normal everyday working compassionate people of this country and you know in the world, um, we are strong enough to like put enough good in it into the world to balance out the terrible people at the top. Um, And that's always what we've had to do. And at some point you get sort of used to struggle too. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) you know, we're accustomed to it. Yeah. This is another time that we have to kind of like band together and help each other and, and do it. So I have a lot of hope in, you know, the people that I know and um, people with compassion and this like, so silly but this like 7 p.m thing they're doing in new york for the healthcare workers have you seen this no so seven o'clock every night in manhattan um i think only manhattan at, at this point everybody that's in their apartments is supposed to like clap and oh, no, I, for I healthcare do, workers. yes i do know this actually a friend of mine that lives in paris was telling was the first one to tell me about this but i'm so glad yeah. to hear this is spreading okay great so it's just uh it's just such a small thing but it's it's so beautiful and like, you know, that kind of shit really gives me hope where it's like we're in here and even in isolation, your life has this momentum and it's very different from what it was two weeks ago, but it's like, okay, well, it's eight o'clock, so it's time for dinner and then we'll figure out what movie we're going to watch, you know? And it's very easy to get caught in a routine of any kind and like forget who's out there doing all the work and who's helping. And so it's just a small thing, but I just think it's so beautiful. And like that, you know, that's the kind of thing that gives me hope. Well, that, I think it's also beautiful. It's a beautiful expression, just like a basic human decency. And um, I think this conversation was very beautiful. Amy, thank you very much for how much you thank shared. Thank you. I'm, I'm honored. And I hope that, you know, I hope that you're out on the road again very soon. Me too. <laughs> and uh, I hope we all get to enjoy it at some point. And um, as for the listeners, thank you all for listening. Thank you. Amy is hi. a Oh, hi. Sorry. I'm going to say that again. <laughs> oh, I was I, that too soon? I it was a little soon. I'm going to give you a little introduction run, but that's okay. I edit, so okay. it's fine.